Verses 1 to 7 say that knowing God's love, knowing God's love for us puts an end to fear. Knowing God's love for us puts an end to fear. We see this emphasis in verse 1. If you look about halfway through that verse, it says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Fear not, so that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they, they won't overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. We see the same thing repeated in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not. Knowing God's love for us puts an end to the fears in our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't have fear. Right? It, it, in fact, it means you're in a fearful and scary place. You're in, the, you're in the river. You're going through the fire. Right? Have you been in, in situations in your life where you feel like I'm going under? You, you're bobbing at the surface, right? Or things are getting so hot, you're saying to yourself, I don't know how I can survive this. You're in that place. And yet you don't have to be afraid. You and I are going to go through these rivers. We're going to go through these fires. We don't want to. None of us want to go through these bad, scary places. We, we don't want to approach them. You see them out there in your life, don't you? You, you see them, you say, I don't want to go, I don't want to approach those things. You're, gonna, you're going to move closer to them. You, you're going to enter them. I don't want to enter them. I don't want to go in there. You're going to go in there. Once you're in there, you're going to say, I want to get out of here. You're going to stay in there longer than you want to stay. You're going to be in the river. You're going to be underwater. You're going to be in the fire longer than you want to be. For the people of Israel at this time, this fire, this, this river was exile. They were, they were in virtual slaves in the Babylonian Empire, spread out, scattered out. As we talked about last week, a minority in a very fragile social situation. Economically depleted, socially broken, very prone to depression, to fear. We can see throughout these verses the references to being redeemed or being ransomed. They're stuck somewhere under powers they don't like, in a place they don't want to be, and they can't get out. Right? Some of us are in those places this morning, and some of us can kind of sense you're, we're going to it, and some of us think everything's great and it's about to land on you like a ton of bricks. And you're going to be in that fire, and you're going to be in that river. It's very important to understand what this says, right? The Bible does not say, oh, now that you know God, rejoice. You are not going to have any more bad times. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is you're going to have very scary times. But in those times, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. So what is it, Isaiah, that is going to be able to change our bad times from scary into something else? What is going to change them from being so scary into something else? And now I want to point out here in verses 1 to 7, a density of references to you. Did you notice this as Shelley was reading? Let's read through this again and just note all the references to you. 
Verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. You are honored. I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Such a thick density of references to God's special love for his people. This is describing an extraordinary relationship. That God loves you and he will do all this for you so that then you do not need to be afraid even when you're in scary places and in scary seasons. You don't have to be afraid because you have this kind of love. All right, so that makes sense, but how do you feel about that? Doesn't it feel a little bit strange, like this great God who's going to redeem me, going to ransom me, and I'm gonna, yeah, I don't have to be afraid in the fiery places and, and when I'm underwater. And yet, couldn't he just make it so I don't have to go underwater? Couldn't he just make it so I don't have to go through the fiery places? If we're so super loved, why are you letting bad things come into my life? This doesn't make super great sense to me. And so verses 6 to 7 come in and help to explain what's going on here. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. So this is a reference to the reversing of exile, the regathering of God's people. Now verse 7 is the important one. Everyone who is called by my name, Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. So God loves us with this extraordinary love. I mean, he says, you are precious. Right? How Mr. Rogers can you get here embedded in the book of Isaiah is you're precious. God honors you. He loves us. He is for us. But he does not exist for us We exist for him. Do you see that? Whom I created for my glory. This is a huge concept throughout Scripture. Hugely important. But very challenging for anybody who's a sinner. Because sin tends to make us feel like the world sort of revolves around us. World and God and If God is for me, then he should be doing all the stuff I want done. In a timely fashion, God, let's go. But God, though he is for us, he does not exist for us. God, we exist for God. We exist for God. And so we come to the second part of this passage, now verses 8 to 13. So at the beginning, we see that knowing God's love for us is going to put an end to our fear. Here in the second part, it's about knowing God's love for us, which makes us witnesses. Makes us witnesses. We see this emphasis in verse 10 and in verse 12. You see what the Lord declares there in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, 
that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed, God says, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. What is the Lord declaring to his people? You're my witnesses. You are my witnesses. You, God's people, are his witnesses. Nobody else is. That's what verses 8 and 9 are all about. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, this is all sort of uh, sarcastic. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. They don't have them. They don't have witnesses to the true God. We, God's people, are his witnesses Why is that? Why are God's people his witnesses? Because we're the ones who've experienced verses 1 to 7. We're the ones who have been held as precious by this God, who have been formed by him, who have been redeemed by him and ransomed by him. We're the ones who've experienced verses 1 to 7. We know who he is. We are the ones who know his love his loving character, and his loving deeds. The relationship that we have with God and the redemption that we have from God puts us in a certain kind of role. We now have a unique role. We are to be, we are a witness to who we know him to be. If you have experienced the love of God and the work of God described in verses 1 to 7. If we have been redeemed, if we have been formed and loved by God in this way, then you are a witness to who you know God to be. Let me tell you something. There are people who don't know that about God. Right? You're having a hard time. I'm having a hard time. There's people, though, that are having these hard times, and they think God is punishing them. They think God is evil or mean. They think that there's no God. They're going through these things and they have no reference to a God who while they're in the fire is with them, who while they're going underwater is holding them up and is going to bring them out of it safely to him. They have no idea of this. They're going into these things with no reference to the truth about who God is that you and I just have because of his love. What does it mean to be a witness? You are my witnesses. A witness is a person who is evidence. Right? So when there's a claim, when there's a court case, right, we're trying to prove uh, an idea. So we bring all sorts of evidence. There's, you know, video evidence, letters written, schedule things. And then we bring the best evidence, which is a person. A person whose life, a person whose story proves, backs up that claim. The best evidence is a witness. This is what God has called us to be. So if we, on the one hand, if we understand God's love for us, this is going to extinguish our fears. Fantastic. But at the same time, when we understand the love that God has for us, we become, by virtue of that understanding, we become this extraordinarily rare thing. You become this extraordinary thing. Somebody 
who knows God and His love and what He does. Do you understand how rare and precious you are on this planet? There are so few people who understand the actual way that the God feels about his creation and what he is willing to do to bring them back to himself. And so we see together in verses 1 to 13 that as we come to the end of our fears, because we know the love of God, we come to the beginning of our calling that we are now this extraordinary thing that God has made us. To know God so well that even when we go into fearful situations, we don't have to be afraid. To know Him so well makes us, gives us the knowledge of something that the world desperately needs. They need to know the glory of God the way that you and I, because of what He's done for us, we do know that. They need to know it, and we're here now to share it. We have it, and we're here to share it. It's a problem, though. Uh, Are we good at this? Was Israel good at that? They kind of weren't good at it, right? We We are not good at this. Israel did not do this. Israel was not a great witness to the glory of God. The knowledge of the glory of God did not cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea thanks to Israel's work. They didn't do it. And the same problems that Israel had are the same problems that you and I have. Right? We are are beset with uh, sin. Right? So if God calls us to do a thing, we want to do something else. Right? We're, We're saddled with selfishness. So as soon as I start, as soon as I shifted from talking about what Isaiah says here about how uh, God can help you not be afraid, as soon as I shifted from that to how we're called to be witnesses, uh, every single one of us said, yeah, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> right? We all shifted as soon as it went to like, hey, here's something that you're supposed to do. Like, hey, 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 don't be all like that. Right? So we've got sin, we've got selfishness. And then as many of us that said that, Right, we all also said, as soon as we started talking about witnessing, we all went to our mental calendar and our mental to-do list, and we were just like, well, I don't really, when am I going to, all right, I've got to put witnessing on my project list, and that's just going to get kind of bumped down. We've got sin, we've got selfishness, we've got sloth. So then how are the nations going to hear, verse 9, all the nations gather together, the peoples assemble, and they don't know this thing. They don't know it. God says, you're my witnesses to who? To these people, the the, the nations who don't know who God is. is, How are they going to hear? Who can be this servant of the Lord, this witness, who will do this work so that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Who is going to be that guy? Who is going to be the one? Right? God, God created Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden and said, I want you to fill the earth with the knowledge of my glory. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He said, I'm going to establish you in the land of promise, and from there you're going to fill the earth with the knowledge of my glory. He called Israel and led him out with Moses. He said, I'm going to put you in the promised land. He raises up Joshua. He takes him into the promised land to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. He establishes David on the throne of Israel. 
None of these servants of the Lord, at no point did Israel, as witnesses of God, do this work. Who's going to be this servant? Who's going to be? It's going to be Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is true Israel. I want you to notice a little something subtle here in verse 10. It's not a big deal, but we see the the apostles in the New Testament take this observation and and draw a connection to Jesus Christ. You notice in verse 10 it says, You are my witnesses. Uh, What case is that noun? Is that singular or plural? That's plural, right? You are my witnesses and my servant. Is that singular or plural? That's singular, right? So there's this, you can say, well, it's witnesses and as, as individuals in Israel, but then my servant as like the whole people of Israel. Okay, that's probably what Isaiah is writing to. But some of the apostles of the New Testament, they draw a connection from that. They say this servant, which is meant to be all of God's people, is really only truly this one man. The one true Israelite who does what all Israel was supposed to do. And that's who Jesus is. He, is. he is the one true Israelite who stands in for all Israel and succeeds where they failed, who succeeds where we fail as well. And we see the story of Isaiah 43 throughout the life of Jesus, right? He's the servant of the Lord who is faithful even unto death. And he is the beloved of the Lord whom God redeems from death. So the shape of Isaiah 43 is the shape of Jesus' life. The faithful servant and the beloved who is redeemed. Jesus is this true servant, this true witness. And so let's think about Jesus and his life for a moment here. Let's, what does Jesus teach us about being a witness? What does it mean to be a witness? You and I came into today, if we're thinking about being a witness to the gospel at all, we've got all sorts of baggage. Probably misconceptions, which is probably why very few of us would say, I'm a good witnesser. You're probably not a good witnesser because that definition of being a witnesser is not what the Bible has in view. So what does Jesus teach us about being a witness? You know, Jesus' witness was not mostly in passing out religious pamphlets. He didn't do a lot of that. In fact, he didn't even, obviously we have a record of a lot of his sermons and what he said, but his witness was not even mostly in what he said. Here are a couple aspects of what Isaiah 43 is calling us to, which we see embodied in Jesus and in his life. Here's the first thing, the first aspect of Jesus' witness Jesus lived as beloved. He lived as beloved. Right? He lived like he was the you of verses 1 to 7. Are you that you? Are you the you of verses 1 to 7? What would it mean for us to live as if we were the beloved of the Lord? Think about somebody who loves you, right? Think about a loving relationship. To live as someone beloved means that you, are, you don't need to go to other loves for comfort, security, a sense of who you are, a sense of hope. You don't need to attach your heart 
to other people's view of you, their good favor, their displeasure. You have attached your heart completely to the beloved one. And so you are able to serve people in a steady, faithful way. Think about Jesus' strange relationships with his family that we see sometimes in the Gospels, where his, his, his mother will be outside or his brothers, and they'll try to get Jesus' attention. Hey, and he's like, who are my mother and brother? And, you know, and uh, all of us with our sort of like Christian family uh, passion are like, how can he say this? He's saying, I love my family. I love my parents and my siblings, but I don't need them to know who I am or what I'm supposed to be doing. Think about his, his relationship with his disciples, right? Like, he loves these guys. He does. They're, they're his best friends. And how many times does he call them fools? <laughs> right? How many t- times does he call them dim-witted and slow to believe? Right? Because he, he's not currying their, their favor. He doesn't need their estimation of him for him to feel good about himself. He's not, he's not finishing up the Sermon on the Mount and going to his disciples and saying, well, what did you guys think? Right? Think about, you know, think about Jesus in relation to the Pharisees, to guys like Nicodemus. Like if Jesus really wanted to have a platform, if he really wanted to make a difference in Israel, he should have done a little more kind of work with those guys. Nicodemus comes in John 3 very, in a very conciliatory manner. Hey, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher from God. And Jesus is like, go pound sand. I don't need this baloney. I know who I am. I know what I'm here to do. Even Pilate. Jesus is right on the verge of death. And Pilate's ready to release him. Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to release you? And Jesus is like, buddy, you don't have that authority. Your authority doesn't bother me. My hope is not in you and your authority. My hope is in my Father. Jesus lived every day as one who was beloved. And that is what is so powerful and strange about his witness. Jesus lived as a beloved one. We also see that Jesus lived without fear. Fear not. Jesus is the only one who feared not. Jesus is the only one of us who ever feared not. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't feel fear. We know he felt fear. But when he felt fear, what did he do? He remembered God's love. He was the you of Isaiah 43, 1-7. He was afraid, but then he remembered God's love and he feared not. And to live without fear... Is an extraordinary witness. Right? You go into conversations, into groups of people at work, at home, in the places we go, and, and they're afraid. People are afraid right now, right? And you go in there and you say, it's a scary time, but God is in control and all will be well. And you just killed that conversation, right? What a weirdo. What a great witness to be full of that kind of faith, to live through fearful times and to feel fearful feelings and yet to trust God through it is a great and loud witness. For those of you who are following along in your handouts, I eliminated the next point. So just cross a line through it. Don't even write that down. Look with me at verse 13 here. This is the spirit, this is the knowledge of God that Jesus had. The Lord says, Henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? 
Do we know that God? Do we know that God? Jesus did, and it was clear at every stage of his life, in everything he did. He was proof that that kind of God existed in his life. His life was that proof. Jesus is this witness. He lived most beloved. He glorified God more than anyone else. And through him now today, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is filling the earth like the waters cover the sea right now. Right? There are people worshiping our Jesus in every place on the planet. Now, you and I, we are never going to be as faithful as Jesus. Right? You're never going to be that witness, uh, that much of a good servant and witness. But that's okay. That's okay. Because now that he has come, the best witness that you and I can be, the best thing you and I can do is what? Point to his perfect witness. The best witness we can be is to point to His perfect witness. And we can point to His perfect witness through our good things and our bad. Through our successes, we point to Him. And through our failures, we can point to Him. Whew, that's good. We don't have to be great witnesses to be perfect witnesses. We can just point to Him. It is by pointing to Jesus that we bring evidence to the world of who God is. It's by pointing to Jesus that we bring evidence to the world of God's great love. Jesus is that witness. He is the person who is proof. When people are going through hard times that, that you know you're going through a hard time, people in your life are going through a hard time, what is God like? What is God doing? How does God feel about me? What does all this mean? Here's how God feels about you. Here's what God is like. He's like Jesus. Here's how God feels about you. The gospel, the story of Jesus and all that he did and what that means for us. This is our witness, is to point to Jesus. All right, so what is our life proof of? So we started this time of reflection. What is our life proof of? I hope that my life, I hope that your life will be proof that we need Jesus. That we need Jesus. Proof that, that God loves sinners and wants to save them through Jesus. Proof that God's love in Jesus transforms sinners. Proof that God redeems sinners. That's what our life should be proof of. So let me encourage you as we conclude how to bring this all into your life. Now you could say, you could, your, your big takeaway this morning could be, uh, fear not. I shouldn't be afraid. Good. That's good. That's here. That's the point of verses 1 to 7. That's good. Don't be afraid. You could take away and say, you know what, I need to be more of a witness to God. I, I, I want to live more as, a, as, as his beloved one and less with fear. Good. That's, that's, also, that's also here. But I think that there's uh, something upstream from those. Something deeper. And I think it's there in verse 10. The Lord declares, that you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know, believe, and understand that I am he. 
Know, believe, and understand the Lord, His love, His works. That's what it all hangs on. I'm not going to unpack all that more. Uh, You can talk about this over lunch, the progression. What does it mean to know and believe and understand? How does know and understand different? Why is belief in the middle of this? How does this progression work? And, And where are you at in that progression? You know the love of God. You know who He is. Have you believed it? Do you understand it? You can talk about that over lunch. Think about that more. But this is what is so important because all of our fear and all the things that we do that are not faithful to the Lord, all of that flows from a lack of us getting it. Right? Jesus was so faithful and so unafraid because he knew his father. I know my father, he says to the Pharisees. You don't know my father. I know my father. That's why I'm not worried about you. That's why I'm not afraid. And that's why I'm willing to follow him no matter what. And in the same token, all of our fearfulness... Uh, All of our fearlessness and all of our faithfulness is a reflection of people who who get it, who understand, who know and believe and understand who the Lord is. The last thing I want to talk about in Jesus' witness is he lived as a beloved one, he lived without fear, and he also spoke about his God. Of course, we've got to talk about this. In verse 12, the Lord says, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and now you're my witnesses. You're the ones to declare and proclaim who I am. Our witness is not mostly our faith speaking. I kind of wanted to lead with Jesus' life as the beloved and his life without fear so that we didn't reduce witnessing to just talking, but that's part of it. But what's really important here, and what I want you to really notice about Jesus, who is the true witness, right? He's the faithful servant, is how did he talk about his God? He talked about his God. He talked about my Father. He never talked about God. It never sounded at any point when Jesus was was describing who he was and what God was up to. It never sounded like he was reading from a theology text. And it never sounded like he was trying to sell a used car to people. It always sounded like he was the you of verses 1 to 7. It always sounded like he was saying, I'm the one my father loves. I'm the one who's precious to him. I'm the one he's going to redeem from all troubles. It always sounded like he was that you. It always sounded like he was that beloved person. It always sounded like Jesus understood who God was and what he was up to. When we talk about God, do we sound like we're the person, the you of verses 1 to 7? That's what Jesus is for. So that we would come to know ourselves to be that person, to be that loved person through Jesus. If we understood how loved we are by God, our fear would grow quiet, Our faith would grow loud. And that's why God has done all that he's done for us. Why he wrote Isaiah 43, 1-13, and why he sent his son. So that when you and I wonder what God is like, when we wonder how God feels about us, all we have to do is look at Jesus. This is what God is like. This is how God feels about you. Here is the proof. Here is the evidence. And so let's let's live in him. 
and let's live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how you, the God of the universe, you, our creator, would talk about us as being so loved and so precious and would talk about being with us, each one of us, in all of our hardships and bringing us through them to redeem those hardships in our life and to bring us back to you so that with confidence we can say we are going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that your goodness and mercy are going to be with us all the way. It's hard for us to, to, to know this and to believe it. It's hard for us to believe it and to understand it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work now, as Paul says in Romans 5, that you, Father, would pour out your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And Spirit, would you take this word and help us to know ourselves to be beloved, that fear may be cast out, and that we would talk when we talk about you, that we would talk like people who are beloved, and we would live as people who are beloved. We would not live as people who are clamoring for love, who are needy and insecure and hopeless if we don't get the, the tokens of love or the, the things that we feel we need because we have what we know we need here in this relationship with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would glorify Jesus in our hearts and minds, that we would see in him, in his stories, in his words, in his life, in his death on the cross, in his victory over death, in all that what he did means for us. Help us to see the love of God and to see ourselves as those who benefit from that. To see ourselves as, as these beloved ones. And then, Spirit, would you fill us with a sense of that love and a sense of that delight and make us witnesses to what the Lord has done in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love our Lord Jesus and we love what you have done for us through him. And yet we recognize and acknowledge that this is a rare thing. And so, Lord, we pray that we pray that you would give us the courage we need to, to sow the seed of this hope in our conversations, to water it in the lives of the people we're around. And Lord, we pray that you would give the increase to that. That people would come to see your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus. And we ask that this word will dwell in us richly. In Jesus' name, amen.